Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. The Entree Architect membership is built for you, the small firm architect. Monthly training, full access to all our business resources, and a private member forum powered by Slack. Come build a better business with hundreds of your fellow entrepreneur architects and me at Entree Architect Membership. Learn more at EntreeArchitect.com. My name is Mark R. LePage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business. As a small firm entrepreneur architect, this is episode 237, and this week I'm back with our friend Duo Dickinson, and this time we're talking about history, revolution, and the future of architecture. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, ArtCat the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM, specs, and so much more at rcat.com and FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work that you love. Duo Dickinson, welcome back to Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. This is this is exciting because this is this episode is different than any other episode I've ever done. Wow. Um, I've done a couple of live remote um, uh, recordings before. You're sitting right across the table from me. We're live. face to face here today. Um, I've done a couple of other live ones with NCARB at the at the conference, but there's you know thoughts going on. This is the first time we're sitting down uh, in my with, office with a guest. Some you know in your office face to face. 
belly uh, of the conversation. Beast. I we you were on recently, episode two hundred twenty nine. Wow. Um, so if anybody wants to go back to that, entrearchitect.com slash episode two two nine. Um, we had a tremendous amount of feedback from that. A lot of positive feedback. It was Great. a it was a conversation about um, uh, artificial intelligence and the future of architecture, right. where we are today, where we're, where we're going. Um, it was a great conversation. He had so many great ideas. I highly recommend that everybody go re-listen to that or listen to that for the first time. Um, but, but I had such a good time at that, that recording that I wanted to come back. I invited you back to the show. You invited me up to, to Madison, Connecticut. That's exactly right. Uh, and now we're sitting here having a conversation. Well, I, I do a radio show. And um, what's easy to do when you do a radio show is you, you can actually record it and then edit it and, and then put it out there. And instead, what I and the producers at, at the radio station I work at value is the people in the studio talking to you live and the energy and also the directness you get by having context as part of a oral presentation. Because even though people are listening to this, they're listening to it somewhere. And they can now visualize that we are somewhere. We're sitting in my office that I've a building we've owned for 31 years and six or seven people are working away and we're at the south end of the office and the light's coming in because it stopped raining for five minutes in the last <laughs> month of rain. And I think that gives people that are listening in a sense that the disembodied voices we have actually have a context and a place and a reality in that, you know, we've both been architects for a while. I've been in one for a very long time. And um, in doing architecture, you have, I think, a sense of groundedness in our culture, which is different from all other professions. And the people that are listening in are typically people that make things for a living. And in so doing, you're considering places like this and you're considering places like you are probably listening to this place and you're aware of things that are not just on the radio. So I really appreciate you being here in this place with me. So thank you for coming all the way here to Madison, Connecticut. Yeah, this is exciting. And Madison is beautiful. I've, I've been through Madison, like going other places, but Ooh. I've never sort of driven through Madison and, and been here. Uh, it's it's got a lot of history. It's got a lot of architecture. You know, if you want, when we leave, I'll give you a ten minute tour of some stuff I'm working on. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing that. stuff all the way around here. It's easy, so happy to do it. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. So so, what are you up to today? We were talking about all these different things you're doing. You you do a podcast. You do you write a blog. You're an author. You have a new book. Um, so much you teach. You do all <laughs> kinds of things. So um, so what have you been doing lately? Well. What's been very strange lately is is we, we, it sounds royal, it's me, I, uh, well, actually we, a co-author and I made a book last year. That book has just been nominated for a Connecticut Book Prize in nonfiction, and that's created a little thing. What's very strange, and this is, this is in 2018, this is what happens, I write for Common Edge, which is a great blog, and I write every month for them. So two things have happened. One was I wrote a piece about Kate Wagner, the McMansion Hell person, and you can look it up on the Common Edge thing. And it was because she had been on my radio show, so that's interesting. She was live on, on the phone. So I do that, and it gets not as many hits as Andre Architect gets, but it got, a, it got for that little place, it got 10,000 hits in like a couple days, which is pretty good. Well, that's interesting, and then it gets you know ten or 20,000 more hits. That's fine. But then I think because of that, 
yesterday, a group of 20 to 40 PhD type grad academic people discovered an article I wrote for Common Edge in January and it kind of exploded. And then another person picked something else up and there's a weirdness of uh, intellectual sharing right now which has to do with the fact that I think the capacity to share is becoming effortless and the potential change in our environment manifested in all the politics that we have, but also I think in academia and especially in technology changing our profession, like our last talk about artificial intelligence, I do think the, the, the imminent change that we all know is going to happen is scary, it's interesting, and it forces people to communicate because they realize they don't understand what's going on. I know I don't understand what's going on. And, you know, I've been, we've got 50 projects in the office at any given time. So we're always dealing with clients and projects and meetings and budgets and code officials and um, everything and meetings of boards and all the rest of this stuff. So I could be easily distracted by that. But since I just turned 63, I know there's more to it than that. And so I end up doing things all for free pretty much, but I end up doing things like giving talks. So two weeks ago, I gave a talk at Yestermorrow, which if anybody doesn't know Yestermorrow, it's up in uh, Waitsfield, Vermont, which is near Warren, Vermont, which is which was really um, an amazing place called Prickly Mountain in the 60s and 70s where a bunch of architects from Yale went up and they built these crazy houses with David Sellers. It sort of spun off this thing called Yestermorrow, which sounds hippy-dippy, and it's <laughs> yesterday and tomorrow. And may. Well, the bottom line is I've probably talked there five times in the last 30 years. It's a design-build uh, program, yes. right? and it's this thing where it was intended not to be quote-unquote professional. It, it, it was embracing of anybody to come in, learn about the basic design skills, but also about how to make things. So they do 40, 50, 60 courses a year, and they're all about the idea of connecting uh, design and the tangible world in your ability to create and and create. Create with your, with your brain and design things and create with your hands to make things. So that synthesis of creation by Yestermorrow dovetails with something else that I'm involved with in these last couple of years, which is something called Building Beauty, which is a program based on Christopher Alexander's writings with professors from all over the world. And we had our first year-long teaching event or teaching thing in Sorrento, Italy, the Santa Ana Institute. And I did something called the home program there. And so you you can see all of that on the internet, it's all there. It's you know it, you'll see it at Building Beauty, the home program. The University of Hartford is is um, in a way co-sponsoring that this year with Jim Fuller, and so that's going to happen again this year. But in doing all of that, Yestermorrow and Building Beauty want to get together to reinforce their academic programs, get students from each to do both, and all the rest of it. And in doing that, um, the interim regime at Yestermorrow they're finding a new executive director. Um, I said, would you like to give a talk? I said, sure. So I give a talk. And, and so when they do that, they say, that says to me, I've got to actually talk about something. And if I give one more talk about my new work, I'll throw up. <laughs> because I've given probably 100 talks about my new work. And it takes 10 minutes to prepare for the talk. And you spend an hour and a half spewing baloney not baloney it's true but it's all the minutiae of all the things you're doing and why you're doing them and what a cool detail this is and all the rest 
and there's nothing wrong with that. And it's I'm, it's interesting, but it it's not taking you anywhere, right? It's not progressing. It's us. not enough. Yeah. At 63, it's not enough. So I want to do that because people want to see what I've been doing. So yeah. I, so I do that. But here, what I did was, and it wasn't what I would, and you can actually see it. If you go to my blog, Saved by Design, there's actually a video of it that the local television station made. The first seven minutes are almost incoherent, but the, from about seven minutes on, it's relatively okay. But I think you'll also find that it's somewhat rushed and, and maybe a little bit frantic because in creating something new, I am acutely aware that if I go longer than an hour, people fall asleep or get annoyed or can't hear it anymore. So it was about an hour and a half lecture that I did in about an hour and 10 minutes, which is not good. So I apologize if you go and look at the video. However, having said that, it was pretty good. And I was also asked by a group of non-architects to give a talk tomorrow in here in Connecticut. It's a, actually a woman's group from the early 20th century. I forget the name of it. But they get 40 or 50 people that come after lunch and they listen to somebody give a talk about something. Well, of course, I'll talk a little bit of the book that, that, I, that I've done, a home called New England, because that's just won an award or going to it's won in a finalist designation will win an award then that's why they invited me but what i mentioned to them and they liked was the idea of the talk i gave at yestermorrow which was also a talk i gave seminally gave in seattle the aia there and then before that at the uh, university of dc before that so it's been evolving for about a year this train of thought that essentially in this maelstrom of designing things there really are two and only two constants. If you think about it, you know, technology always changes, codes always change, money changes, clients change, uh, even code officials change, um, the magazines change, stylistic preference changes. The politics. The politics change, culture. everything changes. But in architecture, we were all taught in school that there was a universal constant called gravity, and we deal with gravity. I deal with gravity. You deal with gravity. Everybody listening to this podcast deals with gravity every single day. We also deal with weather. Well, weather we deal every day, but weather changes. So it's a lot, it's a bit warmer than it used to be and maybe a little bit more radical than it used to be. It's going to get more radical, maybe, maybe people say. So weather changes. And I did it, just finished a house in California. That's a totally different place than the weather here in New England. So it's not a constant. It's actually a change. The constant, the other constant, and this is the thing that I really presented it yesterday clearly and would like to talk about today with you is the other constant to me is time it's history so so in this thing i'm, I'm going through the the idea i'm going showing you some of the slides as we're doing this is that you know there's something called the the passing of time and it's universal it's inevitable and to me when something's universal inevitable it has a characteristic of beauty which is like a sunset a sunrise you kind of know it's always going to happen but it, when you see it you're thrilled because it's different it's 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 it is what it is but it's constant well we know we were taught and we know really how to deal with gravity i mean it's beams wind earthquake uh, all of this temperature moving uh, of of different components and accepting the movement and diffusing the movement and, and dissipating into the ground. We know how to deal with gravity. That's all true. But we really don't know how to deal with history as almost a culture, but really as an architect, as designers, I don't think we really have embraced and understand history as, as part of every single thing we do, everything our clients do, and everything we end up doing in the space of 
the world and our culture. And because of that, we run into things like a piece I wrote for Common Edge about the new Botox commercial that came out about um, uh, men using Botox because we're so cool that we deserve not to have wrinkles as well. And they decided to use an architect as one of the two or three people uh, that they would focus on. He was, of course, using mid-20th century pencils and triangular rules, and he was clearly not an architect. He was a model, and he was doing these cool things, and a kid comes in. But the, the reason why they chose him was because he cared about the details. He cared about the details. The details of his buildings, but also implicitly the details of his sagging skin. I did hear that there's a big Botox um, revolution throughout the architectural community. Really? Is that true? <laughs> no. I, I think they should. They should inject buildings with Botox so they don't sag. I mean, that would be good for falling water. You know, could, uh, but but, but the, the, the really bad thing is, a, a good thing, well, it is a thing, is that we feel somehow that we need, as I think a culture, but also as architects, we need to, eat, we need to do one of two things with history, and both are impossible. I mean... What we were taught in school, really, was we were taught in school that history is something that we should evolve from. History is past. History is old answers. We need new answers because we have new questions. Or we're taught, and now there are five or six, seven schools of classical design, traditional design, we're taught that there's nothing that is new that is as good as something that has been done before and is old. So we want to do two things in architecture as it is taught now and also expressed now. We either want to recreate the past or we want to deny the past. Well, that's crazy because the truth is the past is true and everything we do will become the past. So you can't deny the past and you can't create the past. The past is old, it's not new, so you can't create it. And it's also going to happen to the newest of the new. And in Yale University has just spent $500 million in the last 15 years completely and beautifully and amazingly renovating works by Louis Kahn, Eero Saarinen, um, uh, the Beinecke Library by Gordon Bunshaft. They have treated tr modernist buildings, buildings built to change architecture forever, as if they were the venerated uh, vessels of truth. This is not cutting-edge architecture and transformative architecture. It is historically lauded and significant buildings. So if you can't reproduce history, just as I don't think Robert A. M. Stern reproduced um, the work of, uh, of, of the go uh, collegiate Gothic architecture of Yale's residential colleges and his new colleges, if you can't reproduce that exactly because it's built now. And so you have, he has 23 fake chimneys there that were helicoptered in, dropped in, because he wanted to look like there were chimneys, because there were chimneys in the old colleges, because that's how they heated some of the rooms in the old colleges. He's pretended to heat them. There was a steam system, but they liked the idea of having fires in rooms. So there were fireplaces. Now you can't have fires in any rooms. So they have fake fireplaces in the dining halls that are literally like uh, plates that have no flu that face everyone with a frame around them and they're called fireplaces and they have no flu. So are they fireplaces or what are they? Well, they're trying to mimic history. They're trying to recreate history that is impossible. Or is it 
doing something like Gordon Bunshaft and creating Beinecke Library that was a phenomenally beautiful and, ex- and, and successful building to, stable, to stabilize and venerate the history manifest in the old manuscripts that he had that now is almost a museum to the fact that paper is no longer part of our publishing future, that is almost a museum, Beinecke Library at Yale is almost a museum to the fact that we've, we're ending paper as a way to communicate it's 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 a museum of paper really it's a beautiful museum and it's all true it's i think it's fantastic but that's not the issue the issue isn't to to bash historicism or to lay fear about uh, artificial intelligence what i'd like to try to do in the profession what we try to do at building beauty is to essentially acknowledge the fact that we are on the cutting edge of creating things and unless we understand that everything we create will become history and has been derived from history we have the hubris to think that we are making newness that violates the principle that as soon as the paint's dry, it becomes part of the culture. It's not yours anymore. Now, that's not what we're taught. You really, you really are taught that basically history is something you should walk away from. It should be irrelevant. You should make something in the context of any given uh, community or any given um, streetscape which is essentially like the Guggenheim Museum. It basically explodes and changes and transforms and uses the blankness of the, of the uh, generic architecture to, make, to change the way people perceive architecture. Well, that's one way. But it's also not wrong to think that that generic thing that you're doing in architecture is like our heartbeat. You know, it's, it's essentially something where maybe sometimes you really do continue the heartbeat. You don't actually bust out into an aria of aesthetics and overcome the chorus and become a soloist. Well, you should probably do that in some things, but other things you shouldn't do it. So the problem is that people either think they should be the chorus, they should be the, the chorus, they should imitate the past, or they think they should be seeing the aria, they should be the thing that's unanticipated, unpredictable, and in fact, thrilling without realizing the vast majority of all the stuff that's done by all the architects that I know is in the middle. Nobody who hires an architect to do interesting stuff usually wants to do a Xerox of a building they've already seen. Nobody that hires an architect wants them to, very few of them anyway, to create a sculpture they've never seen. So it's one of these things where we're all operating in this middle ground of creativity and reinvention and our culture And that involves, I think, going counter to the replication of history, which has a gigantic industry in the historic preservationist movement, of which I'm a member. I'm a member of the New Haven um, Historic Preservation Trust. I'm basically um, a preservationist. I like old buildings. I deal with old buildings every day. At the same time, I do new buildings that people like because they're new, but also don't like because they're new, because I don't see any discord between maintaining Beinecke Library or maintaining my church, Trinity Church of the Green in New Haven, where we just did new steps that were made out of brownstone because the state historic department said if they weren't brownstone, they weren't legitimate. So we actually had to bring in brownstone from India to satisfy them (laughs) because they wanted to reproduce history. And I wanted to use brown granite because brown granite has the same hue and the same sense and would last as long as this two and a half times as expensive Indian granite we had to bring, uh, Indian brownstone we had to bring in. Probably longer. Well, the Indian brownstone probably will last about as long, but the truth of the matter is it costs two and a half times as much. So 
It's certainly not historical. It's coming from India. It's coming from India. They would not have built it that way originally. And what it replaced was actually concrete because they'd smeared over the brownstone over 150 years ago with concrete. So what is this? Are we are we are we doing a kabuki dance of imitation, or are we pretending we're inventing? What I'm what I really want to talk about today is the fact that when a, when you you actually want to create something, you know, uh, there, there's this um, this this group, um, which is a wonderful group, which is and I'm spacing on the name now, but the um, it's the American Classical Institute. It's it's this it's that's the wrong name, but it's this great group of people that want to rebuild Penn Station exactly the way it was. I mean, exactly the way it was, and the only way to do that is to use artificial intelligence to actually create the CNC machines to use. Uh, you know, 3D Xeroxing to create all this stuff because then you can scan stuff and you can make stuff just exactly, by the way, what they did in a lot of the stuff at the Yale colleges. You'd make something, you'd scan it, you'd 3D print it, and you'd make it. Um, the the truth is that's probably not going to happen because it doesn't, they don't have the political clout. They, they've been now announced plans to, to renovate the existing horrific building, uh, Penn Station, that was done in uh, 1966 that was, that is a bad building and all about economics. They're going to f- try to fix that, not build the new Penn Station, but there's been enormous support to build a new old Penn Station because I do think people find comfort in the past. And I do think that when you have a slogan, make America great again, there's comfort in that. You, you're an American, you know America, I want it to be what it was because I know that and it's comforting. There's nothing wrong with that except you realize the reason why you need that is because everybody knows everything's going to change. Everybody knows that at some point the thing that you're sitting here with these three or four recording devices that we're talking through, my laptop is over here, it's connected to the internet really by satellites. We're we're all kind of um, operating in this now 20-year-old method of communication, which we know is going to have a deep background of artificial intelligence, where every single thing everybody does is going to be filtered through everything we've ever done before in the database of artificial intelligence. So when we when you create a building, it will probably not matter that you have an architect for many buildings anymore. You'll be able to go directly to the database and make your own building, and it will take care of all those messy details, unless unless architects can be more than Xerox machines, by the way, historic preservation, if you're going to try to make a living doing historic buildings, artificial intelligence will do a better job than you will. And if you're an architect that says, I'm going to make a new building and I'm, that's never been done before and I'm going to use artificial intelligence and I'm going to rely on that to make a new building, you just lost because artificial intelligence is only the stuff we've already done it's the database of the things that we, we've created and now we can combine them and recombine them. The only way to take what we have done as humans and take it to a different place for the next generation of humans is to realize that history is just as important as gravity when you make a building that the disembodied reality of the hubris of trying to invent history with modernism or the fearful replication of what has previously existed in super traditional historicist architecture, those are two ends of a spectrum 
that deny the fact that it's only through invention you can actually create something which pushes the culture forward. And invention doesn't mean new for new. It means new in the context of what does it mean in the past, the present, and maybe the future. If you don't understand that there's like a time continuum, what you're doing is creating a disembodied reality of what you perceive to be the future of humanity and, dis- and somehow figuring out how you can do something that really will shock and thrill people. Well, shocking and thrilling people, to me, if you can get somebody to pay for it, is fine for the moment you shock and thrill them, but the buildings are now around for at least a generation until they get torn down. And the truth of the matter is, if you compel people to address shock and awe in your architecture, to me, that's just as shallow as you're making a building they've seen a hundred million times before and have no shock and awe. In fact, they yawn when they see your building. So the vast majority of buildings are would benefit from architects learning that history is part of every single thing they do right now, that the history of the past... I mean, I, we're, we're, in making this talk, I kind of realized that that there was actually a truth that we don't want to actually deal with, which is that every zoning code is history. It's our way of, of, as a culture, of looking at our communities and saying, well, what have we done? What should we do? The zoning code will shape that. Well, unless you understand that, you can't, as an architect, go in front of a board and say, well, in the past, you were thinking about this. Well, what about that? I mean, one of the great examples is, I don't know if you've ever known know the architect named Will Armster. He's a local architect at Guilford, Connecticut. No. So he, he, this is, he goes to the historic district or the historic town of Guilford, Connecticut. I'm not sure this is actually in the historic district, but there's a site, and he wants to do a condo. And for reasons best known to, to Will Armster, who basically is a genius and is, is you know not young, he goes 30 years ago in front of the town, and he, uh, a good friend of ours, Jim Wilson, actually helped make this along with the Ravers, actually had physically themselves built this while they were in their last years of high school. He, he presents to the board essentially the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> it's, a, it's a floating lozenge that's supported off yeah. the ground. And the board says, no way, forget it, it's going to happen. Will Armster, who exquisitely understands history despite his extreme high modernist sensibility, says, well, wait a minute. He said, the first time they built a salt box, they said, what a strange building. It's never been built before. How do you know that what I'm going to do here isn't going to be the future of architecture? And they said, well, you know, we don't. He said, well, then what grounds do you have to turn it down? And they thought about it, and they said, really? Actually, none. None. Because you've complied, you've complied with all of the setbacks, you comply with the height limitations, you know, your use has to be approved, which is, I think, eight units in a place that normally only has, you know, maybe two units. But he was able to show them a tapestry of history that enabled him to say, given the context, the fact there are other non-traditional buildings around, that this is just as historic as any other building, maybe not now, but in a generation. And in fact, the odd thing is that if you say to anybody in this sort of shoreline community, oh, the Starship Enterprise in Guilford, everybody knows where it is. It's become part of a living history. And who knows if it's a good building or a bad building. I rather enjoy it. It's just like, it's it's literally just like the Guggenheim Museum. You know, you see Cape Federal uh, salt box one after the other after the other, and then Starship Enterprise. Yeah, And it becomes this kind of wonderful 
expression of Will Armster, who is an architect that that will people will know after he's gone. Well, if if your sole purpose is to let people know who you were after you've gone, do you want to do it in a way which says he argued in front of the zoning board this is part of history, or does he say screw you, I want to do this because I think it's cool? Yeah. I mean, I. I I know Will well enough to know that he didn't say that and didn't mean that. He said, I am part of history. I've made a lot of buildings. They're all different, but they're all grounded in where they are because I know what's going on. And it's my vision here in my place where I live. And he lived in Guilford, raised four kids in Guilford with his wife. Um, this is who I am. And that also allowed places like Yestermorrow and... Um, that whole community of young architects to build crazy houses in Vermont and actually not be rejected, actually kind of be embraced because they realized they were in a different place. They knew they were in Warren, Vermont, in Waitsfield, Vermont. They knew that they were up there on Prickly Mountain making these totally crazy things. And that was part of what they knew because they knew where they were in history. They weren't going into Manhattan and saying, I want to build this skyscraper because it embodies uh, the, the vision of the 23rd century that we will never see. It's The level of hubris is dialed back, but the level of expression is completely unfettered. If you understand that what you're doing in history has a basis beyond you. If you're subsumed and said the basis beyond you is everyone else and I don't count, well then you're replicating history and that's not leading anything forward. If at the same time you're saying everything that has happened is irrelevant and bad. I'm going to make something that hasn't been done before because everything in the past is bad and, and only the stuff that is in the future and unseen is good. Well, that's also just ridiculous, right? So that sense that, that um, history is the only other immutable constant in architecture is something that I think we're going to try to do in building beauty. I mean, because what I what I said, and here's the little little thing, this little slide I did at at Yestermore, and I'll do the same thing tomorrow in North Haven, Connecticut. I said, you cannot deny gravity, you cannot deny history. If you copy, you are not creating. If you deny context, you are blind. If you deny gravity, you'll always fail. If you deny climate, you will always fail. And and you'd mentioned that there was a final question that you're going to ask me. If you deny value and cost, you will always fail. Those things, those sort of those paradigms that are not style based are uncomfortable for architects because I do believe that in these last years, really the last hundred years, we've come to be quite comfortable in a canon. And the canon the rule book is one that either worships the past or denies the past and basically blames mediocrity and a lack of imagination on the client or the, or the town or the budget, and we don't look in the mirror. The mirror says that the budget is important, the climate is important, the context is important, but copying isn't the answer. And giving up isn't the answer either, and doing exactly what is, is the norm just to get by. It's probably what is your call to do is to actually probably make less money per hour, probably, probably make some people upset with you, is to never stop suggesting the better solution, not based on your genius or 
or money, but based on the higher purposes of what the culture and the program and the site are telling you to do. Because most times, people take build people treat architects as essentially artificial intelligence to take their needs, process them, and give them a building they already know. And you can only change that paradigm is if you can actually say time out. That's not true. You're in control. You're spending a lot of money. Don't you want to have the, the world that is around you manifest in this building, not just history and reproduce what's there, not to deny history and have a bad building that'll leak and fall down and people won't like because I'm trying to do things that aren't there, but something in the middle that I'm proposing to you that you might not want to spend that much time, maybe not that much money to do, but will actually be a building that you're remembered for, we're remembered for, actually pushes the pile forward, is creative on a level which takes more time. And I think the culture is not one that's friendly towards taking more time, especially when technology is making things happen this quickly. I mean, technology is saying, you want A, press A, you get A. And there's no actual re-examination of what A is. And what I hope you can see from this, this, this slideshow is that, is that it's just as easy an answer to say, I want A, press 1740 salt box and get the stock plan out of it, as it is to say, I want a architect grooviness and get the 40,000th cantilever with a glass facade on it. Because the two things are memes. They're, they're extremes, they're actually cliches, and they end up being things that take history and either worship it or say, screw it. And you can't worship history because it's profane. It's who we are. It's just as shallow as we are. It's just as noble as we are. It's it's who we are. It's warts and all. History is everything. It's stuff that's ugly. It's stuff that's beautiful. It's just part of our past. And you also can't take something that you're, you're going to pretend denies history and make it better than history because who knows? It could be better than history, but you, you're not going to know it in your lifetime. It's, it's, it, if the intention is to do something that screws history probably it's just going to be a bad building. And it's because, to me, this is the next slide, I basically said, history is everywhere, it's all the time, it's in the designer, and it's in the user. So the, the reality is that history or the future are not styles. That's what I, if there's one message from this podcast, is that if you think there's a style called history or anti-history, that is the most superficial way of looking at architecture because that's saying, I'm going to dress in Prada today or I'm going to dress in a, wear my Levi jeans and my Gap shirt and I'm going to basically just go with the uniform and the uniform is either historic preservation slash traditionalism or it's modernism slash the way I was taught or the, or the way that the magazine wants me to do it or the way the photo looks and the middle ground of dealing with the people that use your building and the people that want design have hired you to design the building, that middle ground is where we all live, right? This is where we are. We we might not want to be here. We don't want to be in the past. That's why, you know, make America great again. Or we might want to do something in the future. That's why Howard Rourke said they were my buildings. I had the right to just destroy my own buildings. But those two things aren't where we are. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our friends and platform sponsors here at Entree Architect, RCAT, 
and fresh books. Hey, are you heading to Construct in Long Beach on October 4th and 5th? It's the event for commercial building teams. And many of our Entree Architect friends are going to be speaking there, including Rosa Shang from Equity by Design. She's been on the show. Mike Rasika from YoungArchitect.com. He's been on the show. And the guys from Arcaspeak, our friends at Arcaspeak, are going to be there too. They're all speaking there. Neil, Cormac, and Evan are all going to be there. If you will be attending Construct, go say hi to our friends and then head over to Booth 523. Remember that number, 523, and visit the team at RCAT because RCAT is going to be there too. At Booth 523, you'll learn how RCAT can save you time and money finding the resources AEC professionals need including quality building material information, CAD details, BIM, specs, and so much more. And don't forget Charette from RCAT, which will keep you organized and will help you promote your firm and your services. And as always, everything at RCAT is free to use. And with all the time that you're saving, you can enjoy the beautiful weather while you're at Long Beach. Let RCAT help you get out of the office at RCAT.com. That's A R. C-A-T.com, A-R-C-A-T.com, R-C-A-T.com, and check them out at Booth 523 and tell them that Entree Architect sent you. FreshBooks makes it simple to send invoices, post your expenses automatically, track your time for your whole team, buy project, and get organized with reports, communication, and notifications. And getting started with FreshBooks is ridiculously easy. I did it. It is easy. Most people send their first invoice seconds after starting their free trial. The same goes for time tracking, managing expenses, collaborating with contractors, and viewing financial reports. It's fast, it's easy, it's life-changing. And if you need help at any time, free award-winning customer service is just a phone call or an email away. It's your choice. And if you ever have second thoughts, don't worry. On top of our free trial for Entree Architect listeners, you will get... 30 days, money back. It's a guarantee. So you don't ever have to worry about choosing fresh books. So give it a try. It's free for 30 days. Just visit entrearchitect.com slash fresh books and then let them know that we sent you by sharing Entree Architect in the how did you hear about us section. That's entrearchitect.com slash fresh books to access your free unlimited 30 day trial. RCAT and fresh books. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. I have a question about where, we are, where we are. We, we've all been through architecture school. We've sat in the big auditoriums and listened to the lecturers teach us history. And history is taught in, in, in categories of style. Right. You know, they go through the different styles and there was modernism and there's postmodernism and when I was in school it was deconstructionist uh, deconstructionist uh, constructionism um, and so there has always been this eras of style and is that something that is something that's um, contrived where we're looking back and we're saying okay during that period all these things happened and everyone was copying one another and so that's the style and then the next style was a was a rejection of that, yeah. and so now that's completely different. And that period <laughs> happened, and then, then the next style was a rejection of that style. So there's actually two questions. One, are there styles in history? And today, 
where do we find us today? Because today we're in a, we're in a, in a, in a situation where we have technology and technology is changing every day. Every day you wake up and there's a new technology and things are changing so fast, you know, the, 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 the rate of change is, is so much more than it's ever been in history. Um, are we living in a period that has no style, right. that has no definition right. because of that constant change? Right. So what is your thought on that? Well, I, to be honest, it actually comes back to this, this book that I just wrote. If you take a look at it over here, it's called The Home Called New England. And if, you, if the average person looks at this book, they will get, um, I think, severely disappointed because the truth is our culture is humans. Forget about our culture. All humans, whether it's in Connecticut or in Tanganyika, which doesn't exist anymore, but in some part of the world, they want to be able to understand and put their arms around the stuff they see around them. They want to be able to categorize them, at least intellectually, sort of cubbyhole them, make stepping stones out of them, get a sense that there's a past, a now, and a future, that there's a progress. You're walking up a stair. You're not walking down a corridor, and least of all, not walking down into a tunnel. You're going from point A to point B, that there's an aspirational direction. The only way to, to do anything that is progressive is to delineate in a way that is sequential, this is what we did, that led to that, that led to that, that led to that. There's a really nice progression in architecture from early technology to middle technology to present-day technology to future technology. And you can just see that technology and economics push all of culture in a certain way. But you can also see that in that time, uh, my son, both my sons sing, but one of my, son, one of my sons is a true musician. And if you look at music, you could see that going in that exact same stepping stone, you know, from Baroque to, to Romantic to High Romantic, now into something called New Music, you begin to see the disembodiment of music from um, something which is wildly, uh, widely accepted as something which is personally expressive by the performer and the composer. And it becomes far more individualistically kind of hit or miss, you either love it or you don't love it, but it's an expression. It's not about moving a group of people, it's about expressing an individual. Well, I think in architecture, what you have is, and forgive me, this is probably something I shouldn't say, but what the heck, I think you see essentially a place that started with master builder architects that dealt with the present technology using stuff that was built in the past to justify what they were doing. And they created really for the first hundred years that architecture was a profession, stuff that essentially built on the lessons of past buildings. They took old styles that were done really by builders and by craftsmen and they changed them, modified them, exaggerated them, combined them and they attenuated them. And so really before, before the modern era, you had a lot of great justification for everything you did because it was standing on the shoulders of the past with that stuff that we all learned about in school, which was the modern movement, you began to say that is an intellectual excuse for laziness and also for shallowness. So that became a thing where the expression and the abstraction and the lack of history and the lack of context and the lack of materiality in many buildings became a way to judge buildings with that same sense of personal expression that modern music has, or two-dimensional art, or you could make many cases about many different aesthetic things, that the personal expression ethic 
was more important than the cultural acceptance love ethic. So, but because we're humans, we dumb down that personal expression to be a style. Just like those antique details were combined and recombined with the, with the Gothic, uh, collegiate Gothic architecture uh, that Stern transmogrified into his new old building, modernism became something where there were modernist ways of doing things that pushed away anything other than the replication of a curtain wall, of a cantilever, of uh, a jointless facade, of all the things that we all see in architecture all the time, of sculptural expression, of climate denial, of all these things that we see and venerate, these things that disembody themselves from our present culture, they become a style. So the truth is architecture is style because style is essentially the two-dimensional reality of what we, we encounter when we look at books or TV screens. But just like this book, A Home, home Called New England, if you think about architecture as style and you think about the home called, this book, A Home Called New England, as essentially a history book or a best-of book or something which you could actually tangibly see a beginning, a middle, and an end to, you will be disappointed because the truth is you walk through buildings. Buildings participate in their communities. Buildings are created, are changed, and evolve no matter how they're started, so that there's a messy human quality to buildings, which is transcend style. And my hope is this little book transcends a history book, transcends a best of book, and presents over 400 years of New England's history. We, we basically try to just show interesting things without prioritization and also without any uh, historical justification. In other words, I'm, if we, we talk, I talk about 60 different people... <laughs> I could have talked about 600 different people. Why I talked about those 60 has nothing to do with the fact that they just interested me. You could make a case that in architecture, when you hire an architect that has a track record of doing things, you're hiring that person because how they look at the world is interesting to you. And it's not about a style. It's really about the combination of the culture, the context, the designer, and the patron to make something that impacts all those things and that's that's why history which is that which is the which is the sort of perception of much larger things than ourselves that historic reality of architecture is not about creating a style it embraces the way things look and is about styles but the human desire to categorize to justify to cya yourself into being um acceptable to certain magazines, acceptable to certain other architects, acceptable to other clients, to other businesses. I mean, there are people that design, 90% of the buildings we see around them are buildings that we say, like, who designed that? Who designed all the Wendy's? The new Wendy's is being built in East Haven, Connecticut. You look at that, some person drew every detail of that building because it's on a specific site, and you go, who did that? Well, who really did that was the Wendy's marketer said, I need to have this thing. And some architect put this together in a way which is perfectly fine. Is that creative? Sure, it's creative. Will it change anything? It won't change anything. Is it? Will it sell burgers? It'll probably sell burgers. Does that mean it's bad? Well, it's not operating in, the, in, in, a, in a thing that would advance anything, but it solves a problem, right? It actually, so, so is it bad? Sure, it's bad in terms of progressing architecture beyond the client need and changing the context beyond the miracle mile that it's sitting in. 
but it solves an issue. My take is, though, that building will cease to have an architect in 20 years. There will be a program called Wendy's 3.7, and you'll press a button for uh, store number 612, and the drawings will spit out after they've processed the zoning code and the and the survey, and there'll be a there'll be a, a, a fully engineered set of drawings to build this building for fifteen thousand dollars that used to cost forty thousand dollars, and you'll build it. And it'll it'll be, then there won't even be drawings. It'll it'll well, go. It'll, it'll be it'll, stuff. It'll be. Yeah, it'll it'll be it'll pixels. go from from the the computer to the the printer that's yeah. build, building it. Yeah. It'll go directly, or maybe into a chip in the builder's head. I mean, who the hell knows, right? I mean, the thing is that maybe even that, maybe even the printing process will go away in twenty or thirty years. Who even knows? But the bottom line is, unless we look at architecture that way, and I do honestly believe that if you haven't looked at it yet, go go to the Building Beauty website. If you see this essential, simple way of looking at all design that is not style based, that is essentially says everything is history. Think about it live it, be part of it, and create something that is new because it's new because it's coming out of you and the context and the client and the material you're using. Unless you can break it down, not to think about who publishes it, who pays for it, um, who am I, almost channel the essential reality of beauty and architecture without style, and that really is participating in history, to me, you've lost the opportunity to contribute something beyond somebody else's approval or disapproval. I mean, let's face it, the people listening to this, we're all architects together. I'm sure the vast majority are architects or designers, some engineers. We have all gone through this the process of having hopes that are dashed in the expectations, I think, of things that we have no control over, which essentially is a stylistic preference. It's of the moment fashion. It's not what's important for our culture. That means that for the creators, the architects, if we change the way we learn and use this new technology to include and embrace humans that you're dealing with context, the zoning boards, the code officials, and the clients, the people that pay for it, and the users who use it, if we actually sort of open it up and say, well, why can't we have light coming into this place at this time of day? I know it's not traditional, but why, why not? Well, that might tell people, well, wait a minute, I saw that 30 years ago at this place. And you'd say, yeah, I know, that's, that's it. If you widen your scope to include all histories that you can, you can find just by your experience and not limit yourself to what is modern or what is traditional or what is Wendy's, if you, could, if you got the ability to see beyond those things, then what will be made by artificial intelligence, because they'll make it better than you, will be made by artificial intelligence. But in the next 30 or 40 years, long after I'm dead, if you have the ability to create something which is not dependent on the fabric of our prior history, but really dependent on your own personal creativity and your understanding of history, the understanding of history that artificial intelligence can't have because it's artificial intelligence, it's not human intelligence. If we can actually get into that larger place where it's not just about you, it's about a lot of us all together in a larger context, that to me is the future of architecture. Being a good CAD monkey or managing the best CAD monkeys of intellectual artificial design that supplants 100 drafting jobs, that is perfectly cool. That's great. It probably represents the, a, a spiraling decrease in the number of human beings that are necessary to create the product 
to build a lot of buildings. The way there'd be an increasing number of humans to create some buildings is to show the fact that we embrace history as the other immutable constant force in architecture, the larger history, our culture, who we are, where we're going. Harder to do. The only way I know to do is actually encourage people to create what they're designing, actually make what they're designing in their education process, which involves to me, you know, nuts and bolts things. I would like it if you could, I mean, right now, person in my office is, is getting his license in New York State where they allow you to, to not have a degree, but to do everything through internship. I don't see the reason why there shouldn't be 20,000 architects in the United States that did not go to school, that learned through doing with people that are accredited, who maybe didn't go to school either, at the same level as somebody who went to, to eight years of school. The idea that, that, that you would open it up to the actual doing of architecture versus the learning of architecture, that's harder to enforce, harder to judge, harder to, harder to uh, certify, codify. But I do think that if we fall back on this, this the CYA of degrees, courses, professors, as opposed to experiencing and doing, which is harder, longer, more mistakes, less, um, less measurable, I think the profession is limited. And it will be limited or it changes and maybe it opens up a new horizon, not for the same numbers we had in the mid-century where there was pencil drafting. But, but I do think there's a future in manifesting our humanity, which is not denying artificial intelligence. It's actually what makes ultimately what makes artificial intelligence is creating the stuff that only humans can create that then becomes part of our database. And, and I think if we think of that database that's already been created as the future, it means that we're trapped in the present. We're trapped. We can't get out of it because we're only going to use what we've already done. And the only way to get to where you haven't done is not by making sculptures. It's by being able to see the larger realities of how people live, how communities work, where the future of communities are going or where you think they should go or listening to a client or listening to a context and saying, but the sun comes here, but then he wants people to come from there. Whatever it is, that ability of humans to accept, absorb, digest, consider, and then give back, that process doesn't subvert artificial intelligence. It'll actually use artificial intelligence as opposed to being used by artificial intelligence because it replaces that creativity. That's the fear. And I think that's why we're in a change time. We were talking today with a bunch of us from all over the world. We're talking today about the future of this building beauty program. And the, the reason why I was very positive about it was because in the acceptance of some of the stuff that I've written and other people have written, there are these sort of tender shoots that we have a group in, in India, actually, a group in um, Strathclyde, England, um, other places that, and actually a group, uh, this subgroup, I think I mentioned about these people on, in, on, um, on uh, Twitter, that 40 um, people in academia, PhDs, that saw an article I wrote and kind of went off on it in a positive way saying, this is the way to look at the future that I hadn't thought about before. Because the truth is, if human beings can just be who they are, human beings and not fearfully embracing the past or 
running away from artificial intelligence and blaming it for for their own mediocrity. If people can actually sort of embrace the change that's going to be happening, which is going to be happening, whether we like it or not, I think architecture's got a real future because I think it embodies the best aspects of human creativity and intelligence. And also, I think, challenges the practitioners to stop imitating, to stop copying, to stop um, designing for somebody else's approval, but to design in a much larger context of history, which if you do it correctly, even if you go off on a bad tangent, at least you're expressing the realities that you're asked to deal with as opposed to the priorities of, will that look good on the cover of architectural record? Which is what the vast majority of the high art architects do, is they say, what will this look like in two dimensions? And they'll design to that photograph. And that's been the ethic for 100 years. And I think that's why we're going to, unless we change, artificial intelligence will kill this profession. I have two. two for one, I want to I want to talk to you again. <laughs> about the future of architecture education. You bet. Because I think the future of education is going to be dramatically different, different in the future. Absolutely. I don't think it'll be university-based. No, it'll I think take a right. long time. And that's going to change the way architects are educated as well. And every other profession. Yeah. And so I'd love to have that conversation. Yep, I'm with you. Um, b- before we wrap up, I wanted, and, and before I ask that last question, I want to ask one more question about history. Um, we're obviously living within a revolution. We're living right. a revolution right now in, in technology and architecture and the way things are happening, massive change. Um, when historians look back to this period, um, what do you think they will say? <laughs> what, 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 how will they define it? Like, like I said earlier, history is defined in these categories, in this nice, clean packages with bows on them. Are we living in another period that will be easily packaged and bowed, or are we living in a, in some other because of this revolution and because of this unprecedented uh, unprecedented change? Are we living in a time that will have no definition? If you look at the superficial manifestations of architecture, which is essentially architectural journalism, nothing has changed. The same buildings that are being published now could have been published forty years ago. The same metronome of acceptable high modernism is published. However, if you look at the writings and the smaller stuff, the unpublished stuff that a minority of people are doing and saying and thinking and talking and teaching, there's a ripple in the force. I mean, the, the force is the canon. The for, I went to Cornell in, 19, in the 1970s. No whiter male place has ever been than Cornell in the 70s. It was white, male, ivy. And, you know, and the only thing that was bad for me was I wasn't a modernist. If I had done all of that stuff, I'd be probably wearing a suit right now and I'd be somewhere in a major metropolitan area wearing glasses and, and, you know, sipping a martini early for lunch. Not happening. So right now, we're at a place... And we were just talking about this in the call from all those different places in the world where a woman from Edinburgh says, tell me what's happening in America, what's changing, what's going on. Well, it doesn't really matter where you fall in the political spectrum, but the truth is we've never elected a Donald Trump before, ever, period, end of story. Whether you agree with him, don't agree with him, the reason he was elected, and it was with a minority, but he was elected, 
is because he wasn't what was. He just wasn't. So you had 63 million people vote for someone, more than half of which, uh, with exit polls, said they thought was not a great person, didn't like him. Why did they do that? Well, they did that to me for the same reason I think architecture is going to change. What is, is fitting less well with where we are and we think the way it's going to be, that there's actually a, an ominous sense that we're missing the boat, that there's, there's something going on that we can't control and it's going to control us and that's not a good thing. So you elect Donald Trump, who is actually love him, hate him, is the anti-candidate. He's the anti-politician. He is the no, screw you person. They elect him. They do that not because they're happy or they want a future. They're unhappy and they want what they had in the past. My fear is that if you are acting in your life to recreate the past, you've lost before you've begun because the past is the past and it can't be recreated. If on the other hand, you think you're going to define and create and perfect the future by what you're doing now, you've also lost because the future is, un, is not controllable. And the truth of the matter is, and I, I write for something called Mockingbird, which is this group of young people. I'm the oldest person that writes for them. The entire blog is about human control and the fact that when human beings have faith in control, they've lost. Because the truth is you, you can't control much. Life controls you, but you can actually mitigate and change and, and make things happen. So the truth of the matter is, I think when the people look back at this, this is a high point of perception by the human race that I know of a growing lack of control. So th this will be not in a way that's the same as the summer of 68 where presidential candidates were killed and cities were on fire and kids were growing long hair and not shaving and, and you know uh, there was a us versus them reality. It's almost harder in that there's none of that obvious um, old, new baby boomer going against the greatest generation ossification versus change, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll versus propriety and dry cleaning. Uh, the, what I think we are at is probably the single most disturbingly undefined period in my 63 years. There is no, well, for many people, Donald Trump is the boogeyman or the savior, but to me, there is no savior. There is no boogeyman. There's basically an enormous amount of uncertainty because we've created the advent of a change in the way we operate, which is uh, technology on steroids, which is artificial intelligence, and that's looming. So I do think that's what's going on. And it, whether it's law or medicine or architecture, every profession knows things are changing and they really don't know what they're changing into or how they're going to be. And you think about that. We don't know how things are going to be at all. That's right there with 1890 and factories, but on steroids, because now we've got a universal instant communication. So everybody knows what everybody's doing. And we are all saying we don't know much except those puppies are pretty. Oh, look at that cool shot on Instagram. And we have this whole culture of distraction of essentially 
cultural pornography of basically being of finding things that are titillating and and amusing while in the background there's some gigantic thing in, under your bed which is terrifying but you're fine you're looking at your phone you're fine you're fine so yes i i think this is this will be a different time I'm not narcissistic or egomaniacal enough to think it's the most important time. I think it's a unique time where technology is smashing up against humans. And we created the technology, so it's humans crashing up against humans. But it's, it's one of these things where what we've created is now changing who we are and what we're going to be. And we don't know what it is, even though we created it. I think, it's this, I think it was very similar in the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, I was just I, thinking that. I do not think it's as similar to yeah. 68. Same that, fears. Same fears. Yep. And, but now there's the universal connectivity and a much higher level yeah. of education. And so people know more of what's going on. So maybe the fears are more broad-based. And there isn't an, oh, well, I'll just, you know, have another beer. There's going to be like, what am I going to do about it? I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go out and, uh, you know, fight Trump. Or I'm going to go out and, and um, you know, uh, be upset that this building is on the cover of architectural record or whatever it is, people will get upset about things. So there's more fear and anger that I've seen primarily because they're vehicles for it. I see it on the internet. I see more fear and anger now than at any other time in my life. And I do also think because I'm a religious person, I think that the concomitant reality of lack of faith in anything other than yourself is ascending. I mean, the truth of the matter is people have faith in very little except themselves and not even so much in themselves. And that lack of a, of a sense of a larger purpose is that denial of history, which I find pervasive in its manifestations as it bleeds through the culture of architecture, music, everything, everything that we create that's not part of our essential um, existence which manifests our hopes and our dreams. If the hopes and dreams have no faith in anything greater than ourselves, those hopes and dreams become sad. They become terrified and they become self-expressive hopes and dreams. They, then people relate to them less. And so it's not good. So that's a good one. This is, this is a deep one. So I want to, to mention to the, to the listeners, we're going to have, Everything linked up on the show notes. So we'll have the slides. We're going to have a link to the book. We'll have a link to everything that that duo is doing. Um, and I want you to comment on this. There's a lot here to, to talk about. So mm. comment on the blog at the show notes uh, and comment in the, the community at Facebook, entrearchitect.com slash group. We'll get you there. Um, duo, before we wrap up, I want to ask you the yes. same question I asked you last time. Yep. Uh, what is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Well, last time I said it was do good work, which is, duh. I mean, not a lot of thrills there. I was asked by um, a website on green architecture about the one, the one element that seems missing in a lot of people's perception of the validity of justifying green architecture that there's that they, they look at it as a straight economic equation and in many ways green architecture fails because doing something that costs too much initially to have a payback long term financially doesn't express the ethical values you have so so green architecture which is often quite religious in its in its generation ends up not being manifest so that's true I came back with one simple equation. I said, well, if, if architects, but if everyone, but if architects, because they're the ones that are framing issues in construction, 
If architects understood the difference between cost and value, just that distinction, what it costs, but how valuable is it? And they frame questions not in terms of, oh, you can't afford this, but it costs this much. Does that fit your values? That simple switch mm -hmm. from a balance sheet to a mirror to what you think is important. If you can break the project down so that you can understand what costs what, meaning you have to understand construction, you have to understand what the builder's motivations are, you have to understand about technology and what the options are in technology, you have to be a better architect than most are now in terms of plugging in and plugging out, you know, the clicks from websites about different products, but understand what is the product, what is the construction technique, how do you frame a wall, what's, what, what does masonry construction give you, what does, this, what does steel give you, what is... What is this stuff actually, what are the implications of these things? If you can frame the costs of the parts of the building, not the whole design, but the parts, so that when it is over budget, and they're all over budget, no, nothing's under budget, everything comes in over budget, you can say to somebody, look, the budget is not mine, and it's not the builder's, the budget is yours. If you have too little money, we can do exactly the same thing we're doing and make it just smaller, we can make it the same size and eliminate these features and keep those or we could say think about the building in terms of what your values are if your values are i want a gift to the community then what can i do to afford that gift which might be a facade it might be lighting it might be windows it might be something which involves a, a water fountain it might be a bench i want to give something to the community what do i have to not do to afford that so it's the cost versus value linkage that I think only architects, to be honest, only architects can provide because builders want to make money, owners want to save money. In theory, architects just want to make the best thing they can make for our culture, and that is reflective of the owner and reflective of the, of the context, and obviously that means the site, but obviously also means the builder and what the builder's comfortable with. We are the people that are got a foot on each bank of this, uh, these these shores. That you know that we are the ones that actually communicate large order realities of cost and value. DuoDickinson.com on the web, uh, SavedByDesign.com is the blog. Uh, active contributor at the Facebook group, so thank you for that. I appreciate you being there and contributing. Um, you can find Duo everywhere on social media. Just search uh, Duo Dickinson. You'll find them. Duo, thank you very much for sharing your knowledge here with our community. Um, again, it's Anytime. been, it's been a, a very interesting conversation, and I Anytime. appreciate you for being here. Thanks. So there you go. What do you, what do you think about that one? That was episode 237. Go share this one with a friend, entrearchitect.com slash episode 237. And I want to know what you think about what Duo just finished saying there in this episode. You can go to entrearchitect.com slash episode 237. Post your thoughts there at the show notes or go to the Facebook group, entrearchitect.com slash group and share your thoughts. What do you think about what Duo just said? He said a lot. Um, very deep, lots of information there. Where do you think the future is headed? Is is it from the is the history affecting our future? Is is this time, this period that we're living through now, 
will it be looked at as as undefined? Is change happening so rapidly? Can it be identified as an era, as sort of the style of the of this period? I want to know what you think. So definitely go over to entrearchitect.com slash episode 237 and post your comments, or I'll see you over in the Facebook group. And before you go, go right now, right now to entrearchitect.com and go learn more about Entree Architect membership. It's a new masterclass expert training webinar every month. So we're going to bring, we bring in an expert every month on a new topic, live webinar where you can ask uh, questions and get questions answered. Uh, you have access to the entire archive of training sessions. There's now more than 30 of them covering topics in business, leadership, life, everything that a small firm entrepreneur architect needs. Plus, you get access to all our business resources, including hybrid proposal and the foundation's documents and all our digital courses, including Get Focused, our powerful productivity course, and an invitation to join our private Entree Architect member forum powered by Slack. So you get training, you get resources, you get a private community for small firm architects. That is Entree Architect membership, and you need to be there. You need to be there with us. Learn more at EntreeArchitect.com. We have hundreds of members right now, and we're waiting for you. So join us right now, EntreeArchitect.com slash, no, there is no slash. It's straight there, right there on the homepage, EntreeArchitect.com. Go learn more right now. My name is Mark R. LePage, and I am an entrepreneur architect, and I encourage you to go build a better business so you can be a better architect. Love, learn, and share what you know Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys. 
Oh one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.